Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Just a heads up that this episode contains themes and strong language that some listeners may find upsetting. Previously, and I'm not here to hurt you. I crossed Bagot Street the wrong way. Unfortunately, I was technically contra flow. They didn't even think the consequences. And obviously the bike made contact with him then at that point. I mean, they can't even have been looking where they were going. He fell back, landed on his backside, and then hit it, went back and hit his head. I mean, we're talking about a man that's just sitting in a, lying in a bed, waiting to die. You were nicknamed the Killer Courier. I was nicknamed the Killer Courier, yeah. Episode 2, The Inquest. Talk to Joe on 1850-715-815. Jane Handy, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Uh, Jane, uh, Thursday is a, a difficult date for you because on that day your husband, Roger Handy, w- was knocked down last year. Ca- yes. Can you remind us what happened? Roger was crossing the road on Lower Bagot Street uh, on a one-way street so he was looking for the traffic to his left mm-hmm. and a courier bike uh, came up the street the wrong way and knocked him down. He managed to stand up and was sent in an ambulance to St. Vincent's Hospital, but he died on the 6th of December from the head injuries of that accident. What happened next in terms of the law? The person who had knocked Roger down had been charged with uh, riding a bike causing a fatality and it was subsequently brought to court on the 23rd of September when he admitted being guilty and he was given a fine of €350 for riding a bike recklessly and €100 Euro for riding up a one-way street to be paid over six months. Did you ever meet the young man who...? Not face-to-face, okay. no. I saw him in the court on the day. That was all. Mm-hmm. And did he express contrition for the accident? Because it was an accident. He looked very sad, yes. Mm-hmm. But he didn't apologise, no. Not as far as I know. How long did a case last for? Oh, five minutes. Ten minutes. Mm. And how did you feel after it, Jane? I was absolutely devastated, as was two of my sons were with me and my sister. And we were just, we were lost for words. 
at the end of the day, it didn't seem relevant that Roger had lost his life. I wanted the young man to be made an example of to stop it. Why didn't he stop when he saw Roger? And you were married for nine years? No, we were were together for nine years, but we had only been married for two years. Oh, I didn't know that. That's very hard. We thought we had our whole lives ahead of us. But as you say, the young man, nobody for one minute would wish... One, a tragedy like this on your family, but also an accident like this on the young man. No, that he has to live with that for the rest of mm-hmm. his life, and I appreciate that. But we also have to live with the emptiness of not having Roger in our lives, who has brought so much to our lives. But nothing can replace Roger. The purpose of this podcast was to tell John's story. But hearing the interview with Jane Handy reminded me that the moment which sent his life spiralling also caused devastation for other people. With this in mind, I wanted to make sure we had all the facts correct, which wasn't necessarily a simple task. Given the amount of time that had passed, it was proving difficult to locate any official records. And I felt we needed to let the Handy family know that we were making a podcast. I turned to a colleague who had covered the story back in the noughties. Conor Fian interviewed Jane Handy after John O'Hegarty had been dubbed the polite bank robber. Hello. Hey, Conor, how's it going? I wanted to pick your brain if you have a minute. Right. Okay. The story you wrote, the headline on it was Polite Robber Never Said Sorry for Poor Roger's Death. And that was the interview you did with Jane Handy in November the 9th, 2005. It was an un- a very unusual case. From memory, Mr. Handy was a very well-known uh, estate agent. And um, that, that particular event made the news at the time. Connor had all his notebooks dating back two decades. Well, I think of them all, about 99% of them anyway. In them, he found a number for Roger's widow. Next, I turned to Amy Malloy, who's an investigative journalist at the paper. I thought she could help me find the inquest documents and reach out to the Handy family. What's the timeline on this? If you were able to give a little bit of time to it this week and see what you think are going to be the stumbling blocks and how quickly you can get some of that stuff, it would help us a lot. Yeah, that's right. Okay, sure. I'll get working on this evening, so then. Did you feel that when people were ringing in to, to Liveline to complain about couriers, and I know it, it wasn't just this incident was a spark, I suppose, for a, a wider debate Absolutely. around the behaviour of, yep. of couriers and cyclists yep. and all the rest of it. But did you ever feel that you could defend yourself? I don't know. I don't feel I was in a position to. There was a lot of displaced uh, <laughs> anger coming out of people um, from witnessing, as you say, the, the behaviour of cyclists or just road rage being displaced and coming out and, and people had the courier industry attracts people that were very diverse from around the world there was little or no um, regulation and unfortunately the faster a parcel got delivered very often would mean especially if it was down to the individual you know how they went about doing that and that could be done in a safe, legit way. And if you, you treated your job in a certain way, which I didn't, um, people make mistakes. 
I believe I was the first person ever in the country to be charged with um, dangerous driving, causing somebody dying as a result of a, a push bike accident. Tell me about the court case then. So Roger would have passed midweek or late, late, late in the week. And the guards call very early on Sunday, mo- Sunday morning after at 6 a.m. Were you expecting them? No, not at all, no. And they they were quite serious. They were quite serious. I was taken out. I was cuffed from behind, placed on the bonnet of the car and told I was being charged with involuntary manslaughter. Had you considered that as a possibility? Not at all, no. No, it was a pushback accident. It was a bump. It was ridiculous. Obviously, as the week unfolded, that became something more of a, of a you know, I, I was running all through all, all through all, all possibilities. But nonetheless, if you're woken up at six, six, whatever it was in the morning, by a number of guards that handcuff you and put you in front of the, the car and say, yeah, that's the wake up call. Those charges were, were, were later, were later dropped to dangerous driving causing death. The judge on the day um, would only accept, I think, a, a charge from the DPP of cycling and pedal cycle without due caution and the contraflow on the road. And I remember her in the court saying this was a tragic accident for, for, for two sets of families. I mean, possibly I was I was scapegoated as a to a degree, but that that's that that's not why this is is happening. I, I think there was perhaps a degree of reasonable reaction. It was a tough time. It must have come as a relief, having gone from that moment where you're being told involuntary manslaughter to a slap on the wrist fine. You must have walked away from court thinking, okay, that could have been a lot worse. It could. It could absolutely. I think the damage had already long, long started on a personal level for me. So when you say it was a relief, yes, there was relief there, of course, but it didn't alleviate what was what was what was happening for me on, a, on another level, on a personal level, which was uh, something altogether different. The relief was was, was short lived. Was very short lived. Yeah. You said that you tried a number of times to, to contact Roger Handy's family. What did you want to say to them? Sorry. Sorry for my part in, in, in his death. It wasn't through my own volition or bad intention, but it was still, I still had my part to play in, in, in his death. That would have been the first thing. I also wanted them to know how I felt. Um, yeah, and because of the 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 misinformation that was flying around and being, I don't want to say perpetuated, but certainly amplified by by certain quarters of the media, um, I, I, I wanted to try and, and, and at least balance that a little bit. You're disappointed that they they never opened the door to you, but presumably you can understand that too. Absolutely, of course, absolutely. Um, We all deal with pain in different ways. So take me to the point then after the inquest and after the court case. And by now, 
you're really starting to struggle mentally, physically? I think the first thing I noticed was I'd become very recl reclusive um, in the months after. And yeah, I mean, from the moment I heard about Roger's death, I can recall where I was, what time of the day it was. And I've often said to people, it, it was the best, the, the best description I have for it, it was a, it was a quite a physical sensation, the emotion. It was as though my world had cracked quite physically, that I was cracking quite physically. What was happening didn't, didn't add up in my head. It, it wasn't real. I had had what I felt was a, a, a minor accident with, with somebody. I'd seen much worse accidents and given everything I thought, okay, this is, this is okay. It was as though I'd been lied to, you know, the world was lying to me. No, this can't be right. The doctors were lying to me. It can't be right. Physics was almost lying to me. That can't be the result of that. And if that happens, if you start to question those things, you... Like a, a fissure or a crack just comes straight down through your world. Um, and from that moment, literally from that moment, at five o'clock in the evening, I, if that crack emerged, I just floated away. So everything else that was happening in my world, my, I don't know where my business was at at that point. I, I, I. Leave it. I started to, the process of wrapping it up because I just couldn't. I couldn't deal with this. It was just too much. It has taken several months, but finally, Amy Malloy got her hands on the inquest documents. There weren't electronic records kept back twenty years ago, so the files were stored somewhere in a warehouse that required an official to physically go through boxes and find them. In there, there were maps witness statements, and the coroner's conclusions. They gave me a much clearer picture of what happened. The evidence from various witnesses and the police backed up much of what John O'Hegarty had told me, although his timeline was confused. The accident was actually on a Wednesday, November 20, 2002, not a Friday as John had recalled. He told Gardie at the time that he had started work at 9am that day and done around 25 deliveries. At around 4pm, he was going to the ATM machine beside the well-known Donny and Nesbitt's pub in Dublin city centre when he came into contact with a pedestrian. A witness described seeing Roger Handy check for oncoming traffic before stepping out onto the road, but he didn't look in the direction of the cyclist because in theory, he shouldn't have needed to. The pedestrian was thrown upwards and landed on his back and banged his head severely against the ground, the witness said. He added that the cyclist did stay at the scene and admitted there and then that it was his fault, that he was wrong. According to the records, an ambulance was called at 4.19pm. A crew arrived to the scene to find Roger Handy complaining of back pain and with a cut to his head. But he was talking to us and he was coherent, the fire service said. An officer who was with Roger in the back of the ambulance on the way to St. Vincent's Hospital told the coroner that nothing happened on the journey and that Roger Handy was continuing to talk to him throughout. But medical records show that Roger was rushed to Bowmount Hospital, which specialises in head injuries, 
at 9.30 that night for surgery. The following evening, Roger's business partner John McNally went to Gardaí to report the accident. John O'Hegarty had given him his details and a copy of his passport at the scene. Now, having heard that his friend was in a critical condition in intensive care, Mr McNally handed over those details to investigators. They would go on to obtain CCTV of the accident from the pub. A guard contacted John O'Hegarty and requested that he volunteer his bike for inspection at Dublin Castle, which he did. The inspection found that it was in good mechanical condition with a working horn and lights. John presented himself to Harcourt Terrace Garda Station on December 2nd, where he was served with a notice of intention to prosecute. And it was four days later, at 7.30pm, that Roger Handy was pronounced dead. The inquest made a finding of accidental death. The cause was registered as bronchopneumonia in a patient with a severe head injury, and there was evidence of a skull fracture. In concluding his own statement to the coroner, John O'Hegarty said, I'm devastated for what happened and for that man's family. I feel great sympathy for Mr. Handy's family, he said, adding, I realised that my actions were inconsiderate by cycling down a one-way street. I just couldn't uh, move forward um, in terms of a company. And as I said, I became very reclusive, very isolated. And that's brought me to... Yeah, obviously talking to doctors, um, all sorts of antidepressants, and it didn't take long. It didn't take long after that. You started antidepressants legally prescribed ones? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Doctor down the road from the, the office. But that went to something harder then, did it? Yeah, very quickly. I don't want to say heroin found me, but it almost felt that way. I was quite literally offered it in work by pure chance. I don't know why. But it seemed perfect. Here was the ultimate painkiller. Here was the ultimate checkout. You could, yeah, okay, I can, I, I can try and handle this now. Um, and it seemed like a logical, you know, step. I, I can see it now for what it was. You know, it was it was my attempt to deal with a lot of pain. Do you remember taking heroin for the first time? I do. I do, yeah. What was the sensation? Heroin much too... People's surprise is quite, quite, feels quite natural. You expect it to be a cargo train hitting you on the floor, getting sick, and all of these images you might have from movies or from books, or because it felt so natural, because it was able to put me at peace and stop the noise that was in my head. Just non-stop noise. You're a killer, you're a killer. I had felt that if something like this had happened and something so unintentional, I had no part in it, it felt. So therefore, my logic at the time was, I must be deserving of this for some reason. I'm not suggesting I believe in, in karmic past lives or anything, but it almost felt I must have done something to, to, to deserve this. This wouldn't be happening to me. I mean, I've always led what I believed was a good life. There was no bad volition in what I'd done. I hadn't seen the man on the road. No, I think I'll run this man down. I hadn't anything. I don't think I'd even been what I would describe as irresponsible. 
negligence, perhaps, yeah. But the action certainly didn't tally with the consequence. Therefore, there was something else going on. Therefore, I needed to just set about my job. My job was self-destruct. I see it now as, as I say, something maybe a little bit different. It was the only way at the time I, I felt I could actually just dampen down or, 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 or ease pain. You've wound up the business. Mm-hmm. You've cut yourself off from family and friends. Yeah. Are you totally alone now, except for presumably a few drug dealers and people that you had to be in contact with? I still had a bunch of, small bunch of friends around me that would have been from the, not them from the job. They were still trying to offer me a lot of support, but I, I really went out of my way to, 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 to kind of disappear off the radar. I believe at some point after that, I, I just ended up working for myself very quickly. I mean, that was, you're talking about within four or five months, I'd, 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 I was in a completely different world, completely different world. You're asking me about my first uh, time using heroin, and it is, it's is—it's an immensely powerful drug. But when you do crack cocaine, it will make heroin look like a drug for kids. Child's play, it's, it's of a different um, category. I was looking for something stronger than heroin, but you're dealing with two very different beasts, you know? Um, and yeah, very often people are addicted to both. It's it's quite common. Um, but in me at the time, the crack cocaine produced a, a, quite a exceptional a, a effect. Even with the, the the heroin, I mean, you don't, as I said, you don't rush in one day and decide, well, I'm going to wake up one day and decide I'm going to become a, an armed robber or a, a drug addict. And the heroin, it, it can be quite insidious in its own way, it, it, it sneaks up in you. So it feels very natural at first. And then one night, maybe a couple of weeks later, you notice you haven't slept so well. And you're a bit sweaty and, you know, you, you're, you're a bit fluey, maybe you're cold. You're cold. But you don't put it down to the heroin. You know, my, my, my life for some time after first using was still quite normal. Um, I was still going out on the bike. I was still, you know, I... I'd always tried to maintain some degree of, of fitness and health and enjoyed what I was doing. So, yeah, um, but I'm guessing within a couple of months, uh, the, the crack had come into the, the equation as well. And um, everything just ramped up from that point. Was money a concern? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's what I was kind of getting at there about the, you know, the the use of the two drugs, uh, heroin would be, I guess, you know, something you could potentially keep a habit going on and, and, and not so much money. Crack cocaine, you're talking about big money, you know, so the height of my addiction, I mean, bearing in mind, I started to pass bits on and God knows what and all sorts of things. Um... But yeah, I mean, you, you could be using up to a couple of thousand euros, pounds worth a day. Easy. A day? Oh yeah, no problem. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny, not in a ha-ha way, obviously, but 
you obviously brought yourself to, I need to function enough to get myself money to pay for the crack mm, cocaine. Yeah. The vicious circle every addict would know about. So you ask about a, a, an average day. An average day is, is, is survival. So you wake up, you feel sick, you feel in a bad place. That brings the emotional reality back way stronger than it perhaps would be. Everything's escalated, everything's intensified. So the only thing you can do to stop that, short of ending your life, is going and, and using. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing, I think by early summer of that year, June of that year, definitely, I was, I was, I was having it delivered to my door by 9am in quantity. How did I feel that? I fed it at first by selling everything I had. One by one, I had bits of musical equipment, I had bikes, I had one by one, things started going. And then the Christmas of that year, I think I had, I had done something with a, a customer's check where I, I'd added a zero or something. I was that desperate. That was a turning point for me because I'd never... That's fraud. That's fraud. I'd never done anything like that. I was like, oh my God, I'm so worried about it. Did you get away with it? Um, I did, but they, they, I believe they became aware of it and I called around to them. They were very good old customers as well and I finished up with them not long after. That was pretty much when I got out of the working all together and it was just full on. Um, anything I could do to generate money, sell crack, buy crack, sell heroin, buy heroin, anything. And... Um, you can only go so far with that as well. So um, the need for money became really intense very quickly. How does one decide <laughs> that the answer to their problems <laughs> is to rob a bank? With a lot of dysfunctional logic, um, mostly. Um, <laughs> Again, not something you wake up one morning and go, I think today I'll become an armed robber. I had reached a point of becoming so, so desperate for crack. I had begun a process of just numbing every emotion that was there. I was barely functioning. You know, I'd lost a heap of weight. I'm guessing most people were putting it down to stress, but it was beginning to show. And so I was staying away from people even more and more. And one afternoon I, I said, I need money. I need money. And my brain in its, its, in, its, in, in its limited capacity at the time, I was trying to figure out what's the most efficient and simple way of getting money. You go out and take it from somebody. So what's that involved? Street crime? personal robbery I couldn't do that I just couldn't bring myself as much as I knew I, I came so close I really thought about how could I do it how could I do it in such a way that it wouldn't you can't you can't do it in such a way it's one crime you can't you're going to leave a mark you're going to traumatise somebody you're going to injure somebody you're going to injure whatever you're going to really you could end up getting locked up you could uh, but most importantly I couldn't bring my pain to somebody else's door even in the state I was in. I remember reading a story about a guy on Stevens Green. He'd robbed a bank the week before. I just came across by chance in an evening herald or something. It stuck out in my head that he hadn't a weapon. 
think it later turned out to be a baton or a stick or something. And it really stuck in my head. It was bouncing around my head for a few days. Over a short period of time, I, I started putting what was left of my my brain to the um, the process of the best, most efficient, um, least impactful way of getting money from a bank. My thinking was very simple. It was nothing sophisticated. It, was, um, it wasn't a long con. This was, I need money. I need it within the hour. And I needed to do it, ideally in a way, that's l- as little impact as possible. And by that I mean impact in every way. So I don't get caught, number one. I don't injure anybody. I don't in- get injured. I don't cause trauma to anybody, if possible however naive that may have been. So I, I started to devise, if you want to use that word, or just cobble together um, a bit of a, a, a plan. Coming up, and I'm not here to hurt you. Oh, well, I'm going to commit a really heinous and horrible crime against somebody, probably traumatise me, but I'm going to do that in a nice way. So I think in that moment, something unconsciously said, okay, I, I knew there was something different about this one. I was at home, fully changed, counting money. <laughs> Within five, ten minutes, I, I, I could hear a guard, a, a helicopter you know, circling. I'm Not Here to Hurt You was presented by Kevin Doyle. Series producer is Gareth Mulhall. Executive producer is Mary Carroll. Assistant producer and sound design by John Smith, with additional sound recordings by Gavin Hennessy. Special thanks to RT Archives, Amy Malloy, and Connor Fien. If you've been affected by any of the topics discussed in this episode, the Irish Independent has a list of helplines available. You can find them at independent.ie forward slash news forward slash helplines. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a 75 euro O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish independent. Terms and conditions apply.